Welcome to Editing Loud, where South Africa's top journalists dissect the news events of the week and um, provide fascinating insight into what this all means. Um, so, welcome, panel. Um, perhaps a start at the state capture inquiry, which has been fascinating this week. I mean, the banks have been testifying, um, and uh, there have been tons of revelations. I mean, Jana, how do you do you sense the banks? Um, how, how do you think they did? I mean, I think it's contributed a lot towards this discussion, but how do you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially Standard Bank's testimony on Monday, you know, it certainly linked the ANC and, and, and some of its top leaders directly, you know, to the mess. Um, and people like Wery Mantashe, who's, you know, they've always denied, oh, the state capture thing is just a mm. fiction of the media's imagination or whatever. Um, and I think it's very clear that they, they had no qualms doing the, trying to do the Gupta's bidding for them as well. Um, yeah, and I think also hats off to the banks who didn't go and, and meet at Little House to be bullied into keeping which, accounts. Which open. banks didn't? I mean, if it was APSA and FNB, um, if I'm correct. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yes. So it's NetBank and Standard Bank that, that, that went to, to meet with them. Um, Ray, one of the things I find fascinating about Standard Bank's um, testimony is that the ANC had essentially called them to meet them in Little House. Um, Gwena Mantasha, Jesse Duarte, and uh, I think it was um, Enoch Gorongwana as well. And, and basically they were told that, you know, did you close the Gupta's accounts because you got a call from Stellenbosch, uh, you are, are you representing the voice of white monopoly capital in doing this? What does this say about the kind of people who are in the top leadership of, of the ANC that they, that they say this stuff? Well, it's just, it's just curious. I mean, it's, it, it shows that there was no idea at all about how the private sector works, or shareholdings, or whatever. Um, because, of course, Stellenbosch doesn't control or hold a stake in, of any substance in Standard Bank. Um, and as a very excellent column in the Financial Mail points out, you know, the PRC is the big shareholder, which is government controlled. Um, and I just, you know, I think it's a sort of bully pulpit idea of what the party should be doing. You know, they did a similar thing with the judiciary when they called a meeting with Mukwing and the other judges to try and sort of educate them on how they should be, you know, doing their jobs. Yeah. This idea that you've got to go to Latuli House and get a hammering if, you, if you're off point, it's just, it's just naive and silly, you know, because... We're in a very regulated and legally, um, you know, constrained environment for corporates, and they have to operate according to the law. Sikhanati, so do, do you think that, that the ANC should be summonsing private companies like they did with the banks to the Thule House to discuss decisions like that? I mean, it seems odd at the outset to be asked to do that. Obviously, uh, it's, it's not just said, it's highly irregular and inappropriate. And, and I'm quite surprised Standard Bank and NetBank did agree to go. The, the, yes, they may have refused to discuss specific clients, but what business did they have to go discuss banking with the African National Congress? And this, again, uh, exposes the ANC for what it really is. Uh, all of a sudden, the main players in the ANC, Enoch Kodongwane, calls NetBank, Calls uh, Standard Bank, Quedim and all of them, and 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 they then pretend it was just Jacob Zuma alone and his government that that was doing this. So, so I mean, Ray. Another thing I found fascinating was the interministerial committee set up by Mosaben Zizwani, who was, let's remember, the mining minister, not the bank's minister. Um, he basically misled Ned Bank into believing that that Provin Gordon was going to be at the meeting when he wasn't. Yeah. 
Um, but what I find really fascinating is that he threatened, he, he threatened the banks. He said that, you know, you get your licenses because of us. So if you don't open the Gupta's accounts or, or are amenable to listening to us, then we could revoke those licenses. I mean, that is a staggering threat, surely. Mm. Well, it's an understanding of how society works, is that you have power and then you dispense patronage and people fall into line. This is how it works. And if they're out of line, you call them into your office and you give them a talking to and you explain to them. And actually it doesn't work like that and it cannot work like that in a constitutional democracy. So it failed. You know, I, think, I think the important point here is that this meeting, you know, these meetings that were held did not produce the results that they wanted because the regulatory and legal environment in which these banks operate you know, just overwhelms the, you know, what a political party can do in its offices. It's true, but, but equally, I mean, why should a political party not know, I mean, the person who's the mining minister, to not know that this is completely irregular, to, to, to lean on companies like that. The thin line between corruption there must be, must be incredibly thin. But Rob, you are being too generous. Uh, he did know, and he was doing this deliberately, and even going as far as encouraging Standard Bank to break the law in order uh, to carry on banking uh, for the Guptas. So he did know. This was a total and blatant abuse of power, mm. uh, no less than the, the other abuse of power that was, in fact, carried out by the same guy who flew all the way to Switzerland to negotiate a mining deal for this very same family. He negotiates a change of ownership in a mine where, as a minister, he then has to sit and approve the change of control. Uh, the question is, do they do anything? They, do they go even an inch out of their way as much as did, uh, like they did for the Guptas, for, for the ordinary people that, that voted them into power? Well, it certainly looks like the NC's top brass was entirely obsessed with trying to get the Guptas' bank accounts open. I mean, some of the testimony, Yana, that I found fascinating was how the Guptas sent an instruction to Standard Bank to, to get get hold of the mining rehabilitation funds. I mean, you're not allowed to do that, right? Yes, unless you've got Mr. Benziswane as the Minister of Mineral Resources <laughs> and he gives permission. I mean, and he did give permission and that money went out of the country. So they did, I mean, they, they were allowed to release it and, and they got access to it and it, it's probably in Dubai or somewhere more, more exotic by now. Um, but I mean, and it, it, it's, I think the real question is also why did Zwane, why did the party, why did the cabinet why was he allowed to get away with this? I mean, he, he, he did have, he was in that role for, for quite a long time, caused a lot of damage. Um, and it's a department that's abused its powers in many ways. I mean, Section 54, safety stoppages issued at mines. And if, you, you know, if somebody doesn't pay up, you, your mine just doesn't operate. And, and it's one of the things that Greta is now trying to clean up in the department. He's closed the Limpopo office that's since reopened, closed it in Pumalanga. But this is a... It's a, the problems are also much deeper than just at ministerial level. So, I mean, Ray, in terms of, of what this means for the ANC, obviously it exposes its, its economic illiteracy when it comes to shareholding and what Joanna described. But, I mean, to some extent we've got ZZ Codworth, the spokesman, going out and saying the ANC is not on trial here. Surely the testimony of the banks the last couple of days puts the ANC firmly on trial. Yeah, it does. You know, I think that you've got to distinguish between the hardcore Gupta rights ministers like Zwani, and then these, these politicians that just go with the wind. I mean, at the time when this happened, there wasn't a serious challenge to Jacob Zuma. It seemed that he would get his successor in place after he left. And so the, 
Mantashes and the Gorongwanas and everyone, you know, we're sort of just going with that. We'll just go along with the Zuma thing because it keeps us in, you know, in, in power within the party and it offers us potential to get somewhere. Um, you know, now that the, everything's changed, of course, they're on the other side of the fence now, you know, and, and mightily embarrassed probably mm. that all of this has come up. And Mantash has already been sort of issuing statements about what's been said at the commission, but, but it hasn't really volunteered to appear in person and be cross-examined. So can I say, surely he should that. appear. Surely he should appear. Surely Mosa Benzizwani should appear. I mean, he has to account for this, like you said, outrageous abuse of power at some, at some forum. You, you, you again are uh, kind of uh, you're quite <laughs> generous in calling them uh, economically illiterate. I, I, I think they are thuggish. That thuggish behavior. Come here, all of you white monopoly capital bankers, sit here, open those accounts. We say so, or we'll change the law. Uh, you can, th th that's what it is. Now, Judge Zondo does have the powers to subpoena whoever refuses to go to the commission. And I don't think uh, the mandashes of this, I can expect Zwane to want to be subpoenaed, but I don't think Mandasha should wait until a subpoena. He, I, I, I do think that he will volunteer himself and, and, and grace the commission with his presence and tell the people of South Africa how much he actually does for any other business. Hmm. Yeah, compared to what he did for the Guptas. Exactly. So one other thing just before we break is that another thing Zondo did this week was, um, was, was part of the constitutional court judgment on, uh, on uh, <laughs> Dachau that is now going to be legally grown, I'm sure, at Sekinati's farm, right? I mean, now that we can do that. Uh, we, we've, we, we've always grown the finest in Ponderland, <laughs> right there on the coast. Now, uh, I, I can tell you, but I can tell you now that my, 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 my homeboys there, my neighbors, should be quite depressed with this ruling for what it will do to prices of the, of the, I actually of the think, plant. I actually think it could be pretty devastating for the for prices, Because, you know, now that it's legal to grow your own in your yard, you know, you don't need to to get it from the trans guy anymore, do you? But, but that's why the, the, the ruling, in a way, was, was a sort of a half measure, wasn't it, Jan? I mean, basically, it, 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 allowed, it said you can, you can use it you know, in, your, in your home, but how do you get hold of it? I mean, it didn't really go towards commercialising it in the sense that it has done in some countries where you can actually build an industry of it. Yes, and I think, actually, I think Zondo should have gone that far. I think he should have legalised it, made it, um, you know, that we, that we can catch up. I mean, it's, I think... Uh, in Ponderland, we can, we can, maybe this is one of the things we can be internationally competitive at. So why don't we open it up? People are growing it anyway. Legalize it, make it, let us build industries, let us build these businesses. I mean, you see in, in Canada, there's uh, mm. companies listing, I mean, billion dollar takeovers. Um, that's where the rest of the world is going. We're doing it anyway, illegally, and it's used, you know, it's used to control people, uh, you know, you see in, in, in Holobeni. Um, where the police, you know, the anti-mining activists, you know, they get raided all the time. The guys who are, who are pro-mining, they can grow their dacha without any problem. So mm. let's legalize it. Let's get this thing off the ground properly. Legalize it. Um, Ray, so in terms of I'm this judgment, what I, what I found <laughs> fascinating as well was the way in which it swapped from the earlier constitutional court judgment that said you weren't allowed to do this. That focused on the potential harm and they had medical experts. But in this case... Um, they, focused, they compared it to, to alcohol, for example, and said, what's the, what's the harm of this versus alcohol? I mean, that's this interesting shift in terms of what it does for 
privacy rights, do, do, do you think? I mean, what? Yeah, I think the privacy thing seems to have been the main lever used in this judgment. And so as long as it's for private use, as long as you're cultivating it for private use, storing it, possessing it for private use, and then using it in private, it's fine with, with Judge Zonder. I, I, uh, I think the Constitutional Court has just opened uh, the, the, the thing. Remember, Parliament makes the law, and it has given Parliament, what, 18 months to, to actually make a proper law. It is Parliament that can then change the, uh, the law properly and say uh, this thing is, is legal. I must tell you, on the 15th of July 2016, I wrote in the Financial Mail a column that, uh, that, that asked, who is the victim of this apparently illegal uh, drug? Who is the victim and, and how better? Or, or why is this worse than alcohol? Uh, surely you can plant the damn thing. And, and I, we, the, 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 the parliament should now get to that level where it will say, commercialize it. Do you think that the Constitutional Court um, read your column and thought, well, we've got to change the, the law on this? Uh, I, I shall not uh, bring the, the, the Honourable Court into disrepute. <laughs> By assuming they read uh, your column in the Financial Mail? By assuming they take instructions from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, after the break, we're going to discuss the JSE and China and Naspers. Welcome back to Editing Loud. Um, in recent months, there's been a lot of discussion about some of the subpar quality listings we've had on the JSE. We've had Oak Bay, Oak Bay Resources, which, as we, you know, we now know to be um, slightly less reputable than a Ponzi scheme. Uh, we've had AO. We've had a couple of others that were terrible. We had Steinhoff collapsing. Um, so the JSE has been debating how to fix its systems in a way, do new things to make it, um, to allow less, uh, less unsalubrious companies to list. Um, and so they issued a consultation paper this week to that, to that effect. Um, Jana, I don't know if you've read too much of it, but essentially there are some interesting ideas in that new paper, right, of, well, of how to fix it. I've read your excellent thoughts on it, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> That's about how far I got. Um, no, I think it's been a topic of big, a big debate, and, and everyone on investment Twitter, I'm sure, have, have shared their views, um, especially since, I think, since Steinhoff collapsed. It's really been a debate. Should there be more regulation? Where is the JSE? Why is the JSE so quiet on these things? You have companies going into business rescue, for example, Basil Reed, then the shares don't get suspended. Should it be suspended? So I think there's been a lot of, um, there has been a few things that, that's, that's been um, irking investors. I, I suppose the other side of the story is nobody forced you to buy shares in Oak Bay Resources. So why not give investors the choice? I mean, ultimately, it's your decision to you know, you can look at it and decide it's a dog and not put your money there. So I, I think that's the balance that they need to, that they need to strike. The, uh, one of the things with Steinhoff, I, I think, is that um, the, the board is notoriously undiverse, if there is such a word as undiverse. But essentially, you had a bunch of older white guys um, who all thought the same, sitting around a table talking about how fantastically smart Marcus was. And they've isolated this as one of the problems, lack of independence on the board. I mean, so one of the things they propose, Ray, is, is a vote on diversity that will go towards the vote of the AGM, and then if more than 25% of shareholders say no, then, then they have to engage with the shareholders. Do you, do you think that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that would encourage greater diversity on the boards? I mean, do you think that people actually care about it? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have diversity. You've got to have... There's got to be disagreement and different perspectives and people with different interests and historical backgrounds. You know, it's essential. Otherwise, there's no check on... You know, it's like having all the holes in the filters in the same place. And when you 
put them all over each other, the water goes through. You actually got to, you've got to have people who can catch the, catch what's seeping through the first layer. So yeah, I think it's a very good suggestion. Aside from the fact that we actually need it anyway, yeah, for sure. as a society, we actually can't have this complete lack of diversity on on major major boards. But Sikhanati, is, is the argument not that we have rules already, and the rules haven't stopped these 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 terrible things happening? That you can put in place more rules, but if no one's policing the rules, that's like what's happening in the rest of society. If no one's enforcing the rules we do have, why put in place more rules anyway? That, that's exactly the point I was going to raise. Who is policing the rules we already have? Uh, so the JSC itself has been incredibly laid back about all of these things. Uh, they, they, they're only reactive, and, and even then, only when someone suspects there's some insider trading, the JSC says, ah, we'll, we'll investigate. Uh, you never hear anything. A year later, they find someone, 10% of the profit on, on that apparently uh, illegal trade. There's no active, the Financial Services Board, whatever they are called today, I have not a clue what they do, really, uh, if all of this happens under, uh, under their noses. The, the question about diversity and all the other things, it's fantastic, there should not even be a debate about it, but are the enforcement divisions of the JSE and the takeover regulation panels, the, the, the Financial Services Board and everything, are they doing what they are supposed to do? Or is this yet another exercise uh, to settle uh, management teams with, uh, with red tape? Uh, where managers are being dragged away from their core business into uh, ticking boxes and then go and vote and, and, and go home. But I do think that one of, the, one of the suggestions is that the large shareholders like Coronation, who owns more than 5% say of a company, um, the fact that they will have to disclose, they will have to vote, which is currently they don't always do, and they'll have to disclose how they voted on the resolutions at an AGM. That's surely useful, Jan. I mean, surely that would add greater transparency to the market and let people know what, what these guys are thinking. Yes, absolutely. I think it would be great for, you know, improving transparency and also, you know, giving coronation clients the right to say, but hey, hang on, why, why did you vote in favor of this if it's, if it's so very clearly the wrong thing to do? Um, I think my problem with non-binding votes is you see it with executive pay, which is a similar thing. If more than 25% of people vote against it, they have to engage. Yet the problem doesn't really go away. So it feels like it needs more teeth than just saying there's a non-binding vote and if, if your shareholders aren't happy, talk to them about it. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these things just don't get enforced. Um, you know, equal pay um, between men and, and women. Um, so, I, you know, personally, I, for me, it's a bit... Let's see what the final version is, but I'm not overly excited about the, <laughs> what they're putting the, on the, the table. The great part about this is now finally forcing the asset managers, your Alan Gray's coronary, your PIC, to, to account. Because all of the time, all of these things happen and, they are, and, they are, and they are, uh, clients lose money. They say, we are talking behind closed doors. Now, get out of, uh, be, come, come to the front. Let's all see what you're getting up to. Account for these, uh, for these huge fees that you're getting. This is, this is the only part that's been missing. All the institutions have really been uh, doing next to nothing. As long as uh, the share price is going in the right direction, they were happy. Yeah. At, the, at this point now, this allows them and actually does force them, if it is approved uh, in that version, to, to, to account. Mm. To be I fair, mean, I do think the PIC has, has been getting much better in terms of disclosing mm. how they vote. So Three months later. Yes, I mean, but still, at least it, it does become public record. 
But, I mean, th these are still proposals, and, and I'm sure the asset managers will have some thoughts on that. <laughs> I mean, Ray, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them wouldn't like to do this, right? And I mean, they like to operate. Behind closed doors. Exactly. Yeah. They like to talk behind closed doors. <laughs> yeah. But it's better for transparency in the market to hear that, you know, Coronation thinks this director's poor and doesn't want to vote for this guy, and it makes other people aware that, you know, perhaps this person shouldn't be on the board. I'm sure yeah. that's a good thing. I think for investor confidence, you know. Um, and for retail investors, I mean, who actually can't really do the sort of research that would uncover a mm. Steinoff coming down the down the line. If you're a small retail investor, and you, as as they are now, or passive investors for that matter, so the responsibility is so much greater on those who actually have the resources and a big enough stake um, to actually do this work and play the part of major serious shareholders. Yeah. Uh, to move on to something else, the JSE that happened on the JSE this week. Uh, Nuspers decided to unbundle multi-choice. Um, Sekhanati, what does that mean? Is that important for people? Why did they do this? You guys in, on this show have been arguing uh, for this very <laughs> thing to happen. And it, it has now happened. Uh, <laughs> unlocking value, right? Unlocking value. Great. Uh, it, 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 it's great Nuspers is doing it because these businesses, other than Tencent, have been valued by the market at zero. Uh, basically, this is a 41 billion rand business. And if you look at a company like Aspen, for example, which is in the top 40, it has also been a 41 billion rand revenue. So Naspas is quite right in saying, we'll put this right at the, at the mm. top 40. But you have to ask, why now? Uh, the, the, in the financial mail, again, there's that uh, fantastic column that says, you guys at Naspas for the past few months have been mooning like, uh, like, like the metered taxi drivers in the face of uh, Netflix uh, technology has come to rescue. So the monopoly on pay TV is now gone and it's never coming back. They realize that. They, they don't see too much growth on the African continent where they already have 13.5 million households. It seems to me like this is a, 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 a mature company now. Uh, they, they, they don't see too much growth. And the best way is to manage is for management to, to not lose uh, their, their time over it. Let the investors worry about that. And they will sit with, uh, with Tencent, of course, and the other internet companies. And, and I guess, uh, indeed, that is good that they, they, they are bringing a, a choice uh, to the market, yet another technology company. And, and the, even the fantastic part uh, for me is the BE element. Uh, so so the, the, the shares, 20% uh, of, of, of uh, multi-choices shares are held by black people, and I'm one of them. Through Putumanati, right? Through Putumanati. And those yes. shares went up 44% or something ridiculous? Went up 44% uh, exactly after a dividend uh, of 20% uh, of the price. The, then it went up 40%, but it's, it's going to be now uh, unlocked uh, what's the term? Uh, there will be no restrictions on black uh, uh, investors at the time of the listing, which again uh, should, uh, should should more than double the price. So it's 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 a fantastic opportunity, and then they add the other five percent. Uh, Naspas will will give to to black investors an additional five percent of the business at no at no consideration. Uh, we won't have to pay for that. Doesn't it nice? Sounds too good to be true. <laughs> You're it? getting dinner. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, multi-choice as a business, right? I mean, it's facing, like Sekinati says, yeah. these these things from you know these these competitive pressures from Nasper, Showmax. I mean, would somebody buy into this thing when you would would anyone buy into multi-choice given that you see that they charge a lot of money? There are fewer people in this country who can afford it with the recession and jobs being lost, and you have 
Netflix, you have Showmax. I mean, what is the kind of future for, for pay TV? Showmax is theirs, by the way. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, they've just priced themselves off the market. That's what they, you know, that's the problem with multi-choice, is that now that there are competitors, people can actually assess the price, whereas before it was multi-choice or SABC or, yeah. you know. Um, we'll have so, Supersport. That's a really good ask. Yeah, so... They, they, you know, now people have suddenly woken up to the fact that actually 900 and something rand a month is a lot of money for, mm. uh, for television entertainment because you can get very excellent global products for one-tenth of the price. Mm. Um, and I think that's their problem that they have to grapple with. So, you know, I think it might be a good time for you to take whatever's on the table and then <laughs> sell. And then buy it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm not going to make <laughs> that recommendation. But I don't, you know, again, you know, maybe it's time for a wave of innovation. You know, South Africans can be very innovative and mm. very creative. And maybe something new needs to be born here that actually can challenge Netflix and these other things. Um, but like what, though? Netflix is already an innovation product in itself. It's a, new, it's a new thing that's come out and it's done really well. Yeah, but I think that, you know, allowing... Netflix to come into South Africa and buy a whole lot of South African content, which is what it's doing, mm. without going in there and fighting for that and saying, okay, this is, you know, we're going to own this market. We're going to outbid you on any, you know, uh, well, whatever you prepare to pay for this domestic South African content, we're going to own it and we're going to be the platform for that. Rather than just sitting back and letting it go because we don't pay for local content unless we're ready, ready, you know, and then we pay the bare minimum. Yeah. Something like that might be the model, um, being able to produce a domestic offering that's, that's very compelling. Jan, I mean, Nasparis' share price um, has been struggling recently, and part of it is because of what's happening in China, with yeah. Donald Trump hitting them with, um, you know, with, with new trade tariffs. Uh, I think Jack Ma, the, the Alibaba um, founder, he talked of a potential of a 20-year trade war. I mean, is that, I mean what are Nasparis' prospects in that context? Yeah, I think they've had interesting challenges there with, uh, from the, you know, it's a highly regulated market as well, um, with the Chinese government not licensing some of Tencent's games and, and kind of strange things because the government have always seemed to be very supportive of, of the technology sector there and, you know, giving them a lot of protection, protection against com competition like Facebook, for example. Um, you know, you, I suppose from Trump's perspective, he does, there, there are reasons why, uh, valid reasons for company, for countries to be, um, annoyed with China and the way that they do business and the way they've built the economy. For example, cheap state on, you know, loans, state loans to, to industry, making it very hard for the likes of US um, companies to mm. compete in many ways. You know, not a lot of intellectual pro property protection, for example. But I think, you know, perhaps um, Trump also needed Europe and Japan and some other powerhouses on his side when he started this fight with China. And it doesn't help if you're at the same time also fighting Europe and Japan and Mexico and Canada and, and all your, your major partners. So I don't think there's going to be a quick um, resolution to it. And I think it can get much uglier than it is at the moment. But who knows what, what he's thinking? Um, I mean, at this Trump, point... What Trump is thinking, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's an assumption that there is actually yeah. thought processes going on. Yeah, well, you know, and the thing is, the U.S. Um, imports a lot more Chinese goods, uh, significantly more than what they export to China. So when it comes to trading, you know, a trade war or just on the on on exports and imports of goods, you know, this can go on a long time before China, uh, you know, before the U.S. will be bullied into into backing off. So okay, guys, we'll, see. well, um, that's a wrap uh, for us for this week. And join us next week for more 
Um, fascinating thoughts. And Yana will tell us if the trade war worked or not. Uh, thanks a lot.